Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Mathematics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Corey Brunson, a junior host of the channel. I'm talking with Brendan Fong and David Spivak, authors of An Invitation to Applied Category Theory, Seven Sketches in Compositionality, which was published in 2019 by Cambridge University Press. This textbook introduces the student or reader to a broad range of concepts that fall under the heading of category theory. Each chapter assumes minimal prerequisites, and together they chart an impressive theoretical atlas. But the book is also a showcase for real-world use cases, and the theory of each chapter drives towards a landmark application. Even some mathematicians, myself included, may be intimidated by this subject, but I found this to be an admirably approachable treatment, and I look forward to discussing it with the authors. Brendan and David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's nice to be here. So following in New Books Network's in New Books Network tradition, could you describe your mathematical backgrounds and your motivations to write this book? Yeah, good question. So in some sense, this is a book I, I think I always wanted to write. Um, so I, my, my mathematical backgrounds, I guess, my formal training begins in, in university in Australia and Singapore, and I was very much a, studying pure math at that time. Um, but then as I was considering graduate school, I, I sort of was at once sort of stunned by the beauty of, of sort of pure mathematics, but also wanting to try and do something that that was sort of more tangibly related to, to my life and the lives of people I care about. Um, and so this sort of this idea that pure mathematics could be used for, for real world applications was something that fascinated me. And at the time, um, a, a mentor of mine, John Byers, was writing a lot on the internet about a a switch in his own, own research direction. Um, he's sort of a, an eminent category theorist and mathematical physicist, but he he wanted to to use category theory to understand networks to sort of form what he called a green mathematics, a mathematics of biology and ecosystems um, that might help us think about the the coming ecological crisis um, and, and climate change. And so I ended up speaking to him a lot, um, and somehow through through discussions with him, he became a PhD. The advisor of mine, uh, but for my PhD itself, I was based in in Oxford with um, Professor Bob Kirko, who's a who's known for sort of categorical quantum mechanics. So again, an application of category theory, but through uh, to to quantum mechanics and in particular quantum information and quantum computing. Um, and so that yeah, that that was where I started um, with this this idea to sort of take pure mathematics category theory, which was something that I found really pretty. Um, and to, to work with these experts who, who wanted to take it to real-world applications. And so, so through discussions with them um, and the community and people like, and like, and David, uh, this, this book seemed something that, that just captured my interest and something I wanted to write. Um, I think it also served uh, a need within the community, um, but perhaps David can speak more about that 
and his motivations because I think that that motivated him too. Hmm. Um, yeah. So in terms of my background, I I was in pure math at Berkeley. Um, when you have two manifolds, which are shapes in space, and you intersect them, you might not get a manifold. And this, um, what 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 you can do is you can wiggle one, and if you wiggle it a little bit, then then you can intersect them and get a manifold. Um, the problem is that that's not functorial, meaning it's you have to choose the wiggling. And we'll use the term functor later. But um, basically, uh, my thesis was about finding a functorial way to intersect two manifolds. You add a little bit of extra structure to these shapes, and now you can intersect them without wiggling them first. They just are always um, intersectable. But when I when I was working on that, it seemed to me that the category theory that I was doing was what was really doing the work. Um, it was holding all of the structure that was needed to make this uh, new way of intersecting shapes possible. And, and so when I got to my postdoc, um, I wanted to work more on category theory. And then I read a book and as a hobby that was called The Moment of Complexity. And it was talking about how humanity had wired up with the internet. And now we're kind of like um, almost like neurons in a great big brain, but we don't really know how to think as a unit yet. And that as things get more complex, um, we won't know what's real anymore. Like videos will be easier to fake. And this was in 2008 or so, long before this fake news world. But I thought that was a terrible thing and that category theory could help organize uh, the way we think as a, as a global community. So I was very naive and just thought category theory could be useful in computer science. And I just started knocking on doors um, in the computer science department and eventually met somebody who was interested in, in talking about um, category theory and computer science. And his name was Pai Lapendu. And we, we, he was working on databases. And I thought that was probably the most boring possible subject. But actually, it was great because it's all about how we hold information and how, we, how different um, groups can hold information and transfer that information between each other uh, from one to another. And so... Um, that was where I got my start in applied category theory. And, um, and I guess chapter three of this current book comes out of that work. Um, and so I, I wanted to write this book because uh, I think that the stuff we're talking about can change the world. I, I think it's like the next super language. Um, I think language changes the world. And this language is the most profoundly organizational thing I've ever I mean, by far, that I've ever seen. And I also think it's just much more accessible than people thought. Um, people think that category theory should be taught in grad school, but I think it could be taught kind of like in first grade or something, like the very most basic idea of relationships and partitions and subsets and things like that could be taught quite early. So, um, yeah. You've provided a great preview for some of the material we'll be uh, chatting through later uh, in the chapters of the book. Um, but you also mentioned both um, that your introduction to category theory was um, by way of another problem or another subject. And I remember being a PhD student in algebraic geometry, so I dealt a little bit with these intersection theorems, and um, Schubert calculus was the subject of my dissertation. But also with respect to the the um, the Galois theory that's pre that's presented in, um, in graduate algebra and a variety of other subjects seem to be 
very similarly organized, but there was no underlying grammar that was used to um, organize that organization. And my sense um, of category theory has always been that it's it's that underlying grammar, that sort of highest of high structures. Um, so as a mathematician, I, I very much get the appeal. You also, the part of the title of your book is that this is an invitation to category theory. And so the next question I wanted to ask was, from your perspective, whom is, is this book intended for? Who is the audience you want to reach? Um, for me, it's it's really everybody. Um, it's uh, I've met friends who are artists who, when I tell them what category theory is about, they they say that it, I mean that they're completely awestruck with that idea that there is a way of relating different perspectives and ways of looking at subjects. But so for me, it's for that artist. I'm, I'm not saying that this book was written for the artist. We didn't quite do <laughs> maybe a good enough job um, in some sense to really reach uh, all the communities we could have. But we intended as like, if, if we could have done it perfectly, we would have, I think, aimed for that artist and for programmers and high school students and retirees who... You know, people who have a sense that there's something tying a lot of a lot of stuff together and they want to understand how analogies could actually be made um, rigorous and to see them in this kind of mathematical um, uh, framework sh shown in so many different ways. So I guess it's really, yeah, for everybody. Actually, yeah. if I could. Oh, I'm sorry, Brendan, you want to go no, ahead? No. Okay. Um... Yeah, so so an invitation to apply category theory is what we called it. And in, in some sense, that, that was just it. We wanted to invite people, open up the community. We think this is a branch of mathematics that is, is powerful, um, that is beautiful, and that is sort of not as accessible at the moment as, as it could be. Um, so the, the aim of this book was to open up um, the community, this research field, to whoever um, hopefully wanted to get involved. But... But of course, um, uh, it's impossible to sort of serve every audience. And so we, we targeted it um, a bit more towards the people that were approaching us um, in our experience as researchers and members of this research community. So it, it comes, I mean, David's listed sort of in those types a, a few people that I think we both have in mind. Um, so from, from industry researchers who sort of had these problems about networks, about systems, about relationships, about composition, um, in sort of, I don't know, making robots communicate or uh, making their, their network systems uh, work work better and safer and, and more robustly. Um, so for some of the, from those practicing engineers to some, say, uh, high school students who, who are very interested in the subject who'd heard about category theory, say, through reading about it on the internet and wanted an entry point um, through to people who had sort of gone through their careers um, working with sort of systems and these sorts of problems, but now we're retired and had time to sort of think about things from from a deeper, more fundamental perspective, and wanted a way to get involved like that. So that that perhaps three three audiences that that we wrote for, but we also wrote for. I mean, this this course was first taught as as a course at MIT, um, as sort of in, in that independent activities period, which is this sort of broad sort of exploratory period where one-month courses are taught to sort of wide audiences. And so we taught both undergraduates and graduate students 
and people from, from mathematics certainly, but also computer science, uh, mechanical engineering, chemistry, biology, physics. Um, and so that was the sort of audience that shaped the book. If, can I ask, uh, is one of the sections of that course, the ones whose video lectures are available on YouTube? I haven't watched them, I should say, but I did come across them. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. so, so we taught it two twice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We recorded okay. twice and, and both lectures are, a series of lectures are available on YouTube. The second one, I would say, are better because we learned a lot from the first time. <laughs> All right, thanks. You sort of preempted my next question, which was to ask about your wide lens views on the successful and potential applications of category theory. We think of, or we may think of, category theory as the purest of pure mathematics. Um, and so I'll also ask, while reading your book, I was struck by the way in which not only the theory supported the application, but the application supported the theory by its motivation, of course, but also by the sort of structures that the theory was then used to uh, produce. So I wonder if you wanted to comment on that. Yeah. So John Baez likes to say um, category theory has always been applied. Um, And I, I think you're right to pick up on the way that sort of these applications have shaped what category theory has been from the beginning. Um, so you, as, as an algebraic geometer, um, would, again, would have seen category theory um, as part of how it's, it's become part of the language of the subject. But I guess it begins um, in, in the related field of algebraic topology um, back in, in the 40s. And so if you're Eilenberg and McLean, you have the, this problem of sort of, you, you have these sort of floppy topological spaces um, and you want to sort of reason about them with these nice combinatorial logical sort of algebraic structures like, like groups and, and rings. And so you need a process of a theory of translation of in- interpretation to describe this relationship. And so if you're, if you're them, you, you pull sort of category theory out of your hat and sort of develop this um, beautiful language for talking about translation, about interoperation, about relationships. And so that to me is what, what category theory is about and how and sort of guides its, its application through uh, and its development through all these different fields in, in the subsequent history. So from algebraic topology to algebraic geometry, um, but then into, into logic. And then it becomes quite significant in sort of the beginning, maybe in the 60s, but the 70s and 80s in, in computer science, where its relationship with type theory to um, uh, help, help develop sort of theories of data structures and, and inform sort of programming languages. Um, and we see this now in sort of languages like Haskell. Um, and, but they also not only def, uh, sort of inform language design, but they begin to inform programming styles within this language. So you start using these structures like uh, called monads for, for control flow and, and so on. And then in the early 2000s, um, they become it becomes relevant for things like quantum computing and quantum circuit design, which is again the sort of compositional um, combinatorial situation um, where you sort of uh, have have all these circuit components and you, and you want to describe sort of from an understanding of each of the parts and and how they behave, how an entire circuit might behave and what circuits might be equivalent to other circuits. And so we see, I think, a, a great emerging application at the moment is to to quantum compilers, so this, this company called Cambridge Quantum Computing, that has, is writing this using um, using techniques developed from category theory 
the sort of state of the art quantum compilers to do sort of quantum circuit optimization. You have an algorithm and you want to sort of write it down in an efficient circuit. So you start with some circuit, but then you can then you can sort of use category theoretic techniques to rewrite it into something um, equivalent, but but sort of more uh, more efficient in in some ways or, or optimized in according to whatever criteria you like. So that's, I guess, I mean, I've, yeah, I don't claim it's complete, but sort of a rough path of um, applications, successful applications of category theory, I think, through to um, more recently. Um, maybe David can say something about what's been emerging more recently and forward looking sort of where you think this might go. Yeah, I mean, well, just to back up, I think math has always been applied in some sense, like people invent at some Point. It wasn't even distinguished from physics. And, and so all sorts of math has been created over the years, but mathematicians tend to study the structures that have already been created, as opposed to finding new applications and creating probability theory or creating logic, like because it was needed at the time. This, ha- this is much more rare. Um, but when you find what, what category theory is really about is the question of what abstraction is in some sense. It's finding those really nice abstractions that, that work really broadly and, and um, that we see over and over. And when you start to zoom out and look at the abstractions at all these different fields of math, from probability to logic, but also to geometry and algebra, the things that emerge are no longer just about math, but about all the things that math was ever about. Um, all the ways that humans think about the world start to get more clear, I think, um, that mathematical uh, take or perspective on the world itself starts to come out of the weeds when you abstract all the different ways we've done it over the years. And so once you do that and you get category theory, then you say, well, now I can start applying this to every place that I see organization. I I see a need for organization for really getting my thoughts in order. Um, a colleague of mine, Peter Gates says that, that math is the art of getting organized and that, that really category theory is math for math. It's, it's what organizes math. So I think any place that there's something that, that you feel like, man, this is this feels like it's really in need of organization or I've, I see some patterns and I'd really like to say them carefully and nicely, I think category theory is called for. Um, at least we could come in and give it a try. To, yeah, that's um, a great quip too. And lastly, I wonder if I could latch on to some of the terms you used previously. You referred to relations and connections, and I don't know if you mentioned orders. But you subtitle your book um, in terms of compositionality, which is how you describe the field of category theory. Did you want to? Min- can you say why that word is where you've settled? Um, I guess to one from from one point of view, it's just that ma- that category theory talks about composition as a basic operation. But from another, it's, that category theory is all about relationships and how relationships relate. So like your mother's sister is your aunt, like different relationships, mother and sister can be put together or composed to form another relation. Um, Or if A is bigger than B and B is bigger than C, then A is bigger than C. Uh, Those are the way relations compose. Um, And compose just means put together. And so compositionality is like, if we're going to be putting things together, um, and I think the human mind, to solve big problems, we we kind of look for smaller parts that feel like a little problem on their own that we could solve, and then we put those together. 
And so compositionality is this, the story of how you can put solutions to smaller problems together or put smaller relationships together to get bigger relation, relationships, that sort of thing. So let's get into that a bit. Um, before taking a closer look at the seven chapters, um, I wanted to try to build an intuitive sense for what, for what category theory gets us. You've talked a little bit about this already. The applications in your book are already the subjects of their own mathematical literatures, and so the thing we get from them seems to be this categorical approach, this unifying framework into which they all fit. Um, why is this useful, and what else do we gain? I mean, I could start maybe. Um, I think this allows us to to see conceptual neighbors. Like when you have a unifying framework that lets you see lots of different mathematical ideas and applied ideas in a single language, um, then when you hear yourself using a certain language, uh, you say, wait a minute, that reminds me of this other thing, a conceptual neighbor. Like I remember as a kid, um, there was like the subject index at the card catalog of the library. I didn't know how they figured out what the subjects were. Category theory kind of tells you what the subjects are by having having a language that articulates all these different subjects. And and so when you, like, for example, a post set, a pre-order or, or ordered set is very conceptually similar to a metric space in a way that you would only really notice if you had category theory. Um, so you turn a little knob from, from something called the Booleans to something called the reals or non-negative reals. And you, when you turn this particular knob, you go from partially ordered set to metric space. Um, I'm being a little rough here. It's explained better in the book, but, um, now all of your intuition ports over from that. So this is the sort of thing you get gain. You gain the ability to take intuition from one subject, you know, well, turn a little knob and land in getting intuition in a subject you haven't really thought much about. So if we mm-hmm. could get into some of the, some of the, uh, the details of the chapters, this, the central concepts of the first chapter are pre-orders and Galois connections. And we can't be fully faithful to the mathematics throughout uh, the book. There's simply not enough time, but I did hope we could get into the weeds a little bit here. So could you describe how these objects arise and what are some basic examples of them? Maybe following up on the comments you just made. So just, I think the right place to start is the pre-order. And so this is the notion just of, um, of an ordered set. So you have, you have a collection of, of things. Um, so, so one example in the book we give is sort of uh, just, just animal classifications. Um, so, for example, or, or sort of tiger, mammal, um, sapiens, carnivore. And, and so you have this sort of set of terms, but then they have this relationship, um, which is that a uh, tiger is a type of, of carnivore, for example. Um, and so you have uh, this, this directed relationship. Um, a is a type of B. And they further have this property that, that, that they compose. Um, so if... Um, a tiger is a type of carnivore and a carnivore is a type of mammal, then a tiger is a type of mammal. Um, and so from, from that structure, well, well, that itself gives an example of, of a pre-order. Um, so another example of a um, pre-order is, 
for example, continuing this tree of life example, is just this this order of, of classifications. So species, genus, family, order. Um, this is a directed, sorry, order in a different sense there, order in, in the sort of animal kingdom sense. Um, this is this is a directed set. Um, and or, or other examples include sort of the, the order on subsets of, of, say, cities of the world. So, um, and that, that's just ordered by inclusion. So there's the, the set just that consists of sort of all, all North American cities, and that's contained in the set of all sort of North and South American cities um, and so on. Um, so that, that's the notion of order. Um, and then once you have this sort of, uh, sort of logical or algebraic structure set up, in category theory, we often want to study the relationships between instances of the, these structures. So, um, and, and the notion of relationship should somehow preserve the, the important parts of the, the structure in these individual instances. So the structure here we've identified is just this ordering. Um, I should say, um, maybe to, to give some more, more sort of a very familiar mathematical examples of order, the number systems are often considered ordered. Um, so one is less than two and two is less than three. Um, and you have, as a consequence of that, sort of one is less than three. Um, and in this notion of pre-order, it's also important that you, you can consider something sort of uh, less than equal to itself. So one is also less than equal to one. Um, and this is, as it seems often sort of a technical thing at first, but it's an important aspect of the, the structure that I don't want to leave out. Anyway, um, so to, to talk about relationships between these structures, um, a monotone, you, you have this notion that you, you hinted, or you talked about a monotone map. Um, and what this is, is, is a way of taking elements of one order structure and mapping them into another order structure that, that preserves the order. So for example, in this, this tree of life setting, you can take um, a tiger as a species. So you can, you can take, um, take the, the, this sort of pre-order of, of animal classifications, or so, so tiger to, and, and then you can map that to this order of, um, sorry, I've forgotten the technical term, but there's this directed thing that goes species, genus, family, and so on. Um, oh, so the, I think there's like taxon taxonomy and then there's a taxonomic rank. Mm. Yes. So it's a map from the taxonomy itself to the rank. Right. And so, so this is an example of a monotone map. Um, so sort of tiger and lion go to species, um, but mammal goes to class. And you see that a lion is a type of mammal um, and a species is a type of is sort of less than class in the order. Ah, and so um, under this, this is a monotonic map from mm -hmm. the taxonomy to the taxonomic rank that takes right. the, the, the relationship type of to the relationship mm -hmm. more specific or higher rank? Yes, exactly. Thanks. Um, that, that's well put. Um, and nice. so here we have an example of this, this monotone map that preserves this order. But this comes up in sort of these mathematical examples. So you can consider, for example, just your, your positive whole numbers, the natural numbers, um, and you can consider the map times two. Um, and so if you take, you know that one is less than two, um, and you can map them to sort of, again, whole numbers under this times two map, and you get also that two, let's, let's say times three to, to make the numbers slightly different. So if you can get three is less than six, um, 
and and so this this monotone map is a structure that preserves this order. Um, what, so we have we have then this collection of pre-orders, um, this an enormous collection of, of possible pre-orders. You've you've mm -hmm. mentioned a couple that show just how many of them there potentially are. Mm -hmm. Monotone maps between them, which sort of preserve this relationship among the pairs that map to to each other. How do we get to this concept of meets and joins? So meets and joins show up um, by by thinking about um, that they they get to this notion of of universality in in category theory, uh, which is is an important theme, but. But the idea is given a collection, say, say just two, um, two elements of an order, you can ask sort of what is the, the meat is sort of the least thing, sorry, the, the greatest thing that is less than these two things individually. Um, and so that, that might sound complicated at first, and it's, it's really useful to have a, a diagram here where you sort of picture your, your two, if you think of your order as going, say, upwards, uh, you picture your your two elements that you're talking that you want to take the the meat off, and then you can look at everything below that, and then everything below you can look at the greatest thing of everything below that. Um, yeah. So to just to jump in for a second, in mm -hmm. in the tree of life example, the meat of two of two different species or of two different taxonomic <laughs> elements or whatever would be their last common ancestor. I mean, mm -hmm. so like if if there's tigers and there's us. Maybe we're both, I don't think we're both carnivores, but I think we are both mammals, say. So what's the, the meat of us would be where we meet back in that tree or, um, mm -hmm. yeah, same with ancestry. If we, instead of using this exact classification done by bi biologists, we just use last common ancestor. So the order here would be uh, animals would be the elements of the order and is an ancestor of would be the order relation. And the meat would be your last common ancestor with another animal. Mm -hmm. And I guess this example doesn't really lend itself to the, I, I, am I correct to call it the dual concept of join? Right. So some right. posets, some pre-orders have meats, but they don't have joins. And this the join of, of two people would be like the future descendant that they eventually have in common, which is probably not going to take place for a lot of us a lot of our pairs. Oh, but that's interesting. That suggests that there are joins, at least in family trees, for example. If you think of two of a person having two very different ancestors and those ancestors' families only intersect in me, say, mm -hmm. then I would be under the order of, is a descendant of, the join right. of those two ancestors. Unless they all, one day have another one and that person is not an ancestor and you're not an ancestor of that one. So if that ever happened, you'd stop being the join again. <laughs> so it's kind of so in this example, joins are really not very nice, whereas meets are. Um, but in a lot of usual cases, and maybe I'll, I know I interrupted Brendan, maybe he had somewhere he was going also, but um, you often have both, or you may only have meets, or you may only have joins. Mm -hmm. So maybe an example of that is the cities example that um, that I, I sort of mentioned earlier. So for example, you can talk about. Uh, the set of cities that that you, Corey, have been to, um, and the set of cities that um, I've been to, and the set of cities that David's been to, um, and so you can take meets and joins of, of sort of not just two things, but two elements of your, your pre-order, but many elements of your pre-order. 
So the, the meat of all the, the, these sort of three sets of cities that we've been to is the, the set of cities that all of us have been to. Um, so I think you've been to, to Boston, you, you mentioned. Um, and so we've all been to Boston. Um, so that, that set Boston is in the, the meat of, or of this sort of, of all of our, our sets of cities. And the join is also nice. It's, it's the, the set of cities that at least one of us have been to. So for example, I, I grew up in Adelaide, Australia. And so that's a city in the join, um, even though it may not be a set city in, in the meat. And so I'd like to push us just one more step at this technical level to the notion of Galois connection, which relies on these notions of left and right adjoints. Can you take us there? So, yeah, um, left and right adjoints are really where category theory starts to be really abstract and people find it difficult. But once they get it, it just feels like this is the most interesting concept. It turns out, for example, um, that uh, maybe people, listeners have heard of logic um, and they've heard of like true and false and and or exists, uh, implies for all. It turns out that every one of the things I just said is an adjoint. So um, uh, true and false are both adjoints uh, in a certain way of something and uh, and and or are both adjoints of another thing. And uh, for all and exists are both adjoints of another thing. And so I'm not exactly telling you what these are, but I'm just saying that if you learned what an adjunction was for the reader who's interested and I, I, or the listener, um, you would see all these famous mathematical ideas and or exist implies for all, you know, um, true and false as examples of something, this thing called an adjunction. But it's also if you've heard of a free group or, um, or a free ring or polynomial ring or um, currying and programming. I don't know what, what our listeners have heard, but there's so many different examples of adjunctions. They tend to be the most interesting relationships between uh, post sets or categories. So actually, you conclude, or close to conclude, chapter one with a very nice interpretation of adjoints, starting with the pullback along a function from a set A of apples to a set B of baskets. So as a, a way of giving a concrete instantiation of this idea. Could you talk us through that example? Yeah, sure. So you have a set A of apples and a set B of baskets, and you have a function F that takes every apple and puts it in a basket. And now from here, I'm going to tell you about a couple of different adjunctions. And these are kind of like the existent for all. So remember before I said existent for all were examples of adjoints to something. And I'll explain that basically. You'll hear me say the word existent for all, but in, in what I'm about to say. So basically now Pick a subset of baskets. Bob comes along and picks a subset of baskets. Um, now, what you can do is have Alice find all of the apples that were in any of those baskets. And that's a function that takes a set of baskets and returns a set of apples. Bob picks the baskets. Alice finds the apples. That thing, that, that way of taking a subset of baskets and giving a subset of apples has two adjoints, a left adjoint and a right adjoint. Left adjoint, what that means is each of these are ways of taking a subset of apples that Alice picks and getting a subset of baskets. So in the first way, if the left adjoint, you take a subset of apples, what baskets should I turn that into? I'll turn that into all those baskets that have at least one of the apples that Alice picked. That's an important thing to do, right? That's what people... 
the thing I already said, where you take a basket, set of baskets and look at all the apples in them, that's something that people would want to do in everyday life. But similarly, if Alice points to a subset of apples, finding those baskets that have at least one of them in there is something you might want to think about in everyday life. It might, might be something a child would want to think about. The other adjoint is taking those baskets that for which all of the apples in there were selected by Alice. If she missed one, we don't take that basket. So this gives for any subset Alice picks of apples, any subset of apples Alice picks, it gives us a set of those baskets that, it gives us a set of baskets, those for which all the apples in them were selected by Alice. Yeah, so two very natural uh, constructions or choices that arise from this single function. And it, it, helps, it helps to sort of associate the notions of left and right at, uh, adjunction with the for all and there exists quantifiers that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And, and this is so typical of adjunctions that things you've already thought were interesting are adjunctions or, you know, that they, they give you natural things, operations to do. Which seems to be a running theme in category theory itself. I remember um, early on, mathematicians will learn um, this notion of a partial order, which then synthesizes all these ideas we've been exposed to in the past, uh, greater than, less than, divides is divided by, etc. So... Jumping over to chapter two, which you motivate with resource theories. This is, was a new concept to me. So in general, can you, t- can you say what a resource theory is and how they're represented by certain pre-orders and by certain wiring diagrams? So a resource theory um, is it, it sort of addresses the situation that you, that you want to produce something and you want to know sort of what resources and perhaps what what sort of cost or, or what um, what amount of effort is required to produce uh, that that output from or that collection of outputs from those resources. Um, so you see um, an elaboration of the notion of pre-order because if, for example, if you're in a, in a chemical type situation uh, in a chemistry situation, uh, you might be able to produce sort of uh, a water from hydrogen and oxygen. And so that's that's a, a directed thing. Um, you can you take this collection of things and you produce so, so a collection of elements, hydrogen and, and molecules, hydrogen and oxygen, and you produce water. And then you might also be able to produce certain other things from water. And so you, you have this this ordered structure where you can move not just from individual things now, but collections of things being less than or being able to produce other things. Um, so what what this how we model this in the book is with a monoidal pre-order and this, this idea of being able to talk about collections of things as, as an object themselves is this idea of a monoidal structure. Um, so other examples of, of a monoid itself are, are just things like uh, numbers under addition. It means that if you have a collection of numbers, you can add them together to produce something in, in your, your set, still another number. Um, and so we... We had these examples, for example, a recipe is sort of a, um, an expression or what we call sort of a morphism in a monoidal pre-order um, because it says that, um, or, or a composition, I guess. So for example, to, to make lemon meringue pie, you, um, you want to start with, you want to say make lemon filling. Um, and this means that you, you have all these resources that you need for that lemon, butter, sugar, and egg yolk, and so on. Um, and then when you want to sort of make your unbaked lemon pie, you need to sort of compose that lemon filling with a, with a crust, 
Um, so you take your, you have this um, resource, sorry, you, you have this extra operation in your, in your resource theory, which says you take a crust and a lemon filling and you produce the unbaked pie um, and so on. So you can construct these sort of large, large diagrams or recipes as examples of constructions in a resource theory. And yeah. So, and just to add really briefly, like as along the way, as you're construct, you're making your pie or whatever in the kitchen, you produce little resources along the way. You produce that crust or you produce that filling. Those become new resources. And then you can each, so the objects in this terminology would be the resources and the morphisms or the things that transform one thing into another are, are kind of the operations you can do to make a new resource out of resources you already had. This was a bit counterintuitive for me as a as someone who has some background in network analysis, treating the objects as the wires in your diagrams and the relations or the processes that you apply to them as the as the nodes. So you mentioned um not by name, I think, the uh cost manoila pre-order pre-order and the use of addition as its operation or a, a version of addition as its operation. Like so many concepts in the book, something called HOM objects were, they felt exotic when you first encountered them, but then you specialize them to things you're familiar with or to familiar settings, and they suddenly become very familiar. So can you say briefly what HOM objects are and what roles they serve? Hmm. Yeah, this is, as you know, a really beautiful thing about category theory that you can, you can sort of write down these abstractions, which seem rather exotic at first. But as we've already seen with the junctions and sort of meets and joins, they, or, or pre-orders themselves, they specialize to many, many familiar things. Um, so the notion of a, a harm object is, is a way of capturing the relationship between two um, objects in sort of our, our order or our resource theory or our categorical structure. Um, so I'm going to just say harm instead of harm object, so I don't repeat the, the word object too many times. Um, but, but we'll get back to why that object, why we call them harm objects and not just harms. Um, so the, if you have, have a pre-order, for example, um, the, the notion of harm, so harms come from a particular uh, other sort of theory that structures the notion of relationship. So in a pre-order, we structure the notion of relationship just by the, the Booleans that say, is there a relationship or is there not? Or in fact, is it less than, is one less than or equal to the other or is it not? Um, so in, in the natural numbers, uh, the relationship between two and four um, is, is true. It says, yes, two is less than four, whereas the relationship between four and one is, is no, it's false. Uh, four is not less than one. Um, and so that, that true or false is the harm in this case. But you can what, what category theory allows you to do in this case is vary the notion of relationship. So instead of just using true or false as the notion of relationship, we might use, for example, uh, positive, positive real numbers are cost as the notion of relationship. Um, so you might uh, think about, for example, uh, this, this notion of, of metric space um, or extended metric space uh, where uh, there's, there's a, a metric space of, say, uh, amounts of effort it takes from me to get to certain parts of, of this city, um, of, of this country, for example. So the, the elements in this, this metric space um, are, are the cities in, in the United States, for example, and the, the homes are the, 
uh, let's say, cost of, of travel from one city to another. So there's a harm from, I can fly from San Francisco to Boston for, say, $300 right now. So the, the harm from San Francisco to Boston is $300 and, and so on. So the, um, if I can, yeah. if I understand correctly, and then I can't remember the phrasing you used in the book, the, the, the technical term, but the harm is a way of reorienting yourself to begin somewhere other than when you are taking into account what it takes to make that change. Shifting mm-hmm. your starting point. So harm, harm mm-hmm. means home, like the word harm comes from the word homomorphism mm-hmm. and homomorphism, homo means same and morphism means shape. So in some sense, it's like, how are these two objects, in what sense are they having the same shape? And the relationship, as Brennan called it, the hum is kind of all the different ways that they have the same shape or that they're related or something like that. Like, in what way can I say that these are actually related things? And so one way is just saying they're related. Yes, no. Are they related? Yes, no. And that's what Brendan started with, with the post set. Two, is it, is it related in your sense to four? Yes, because it's less than. Is it related in your sense to one? No, because... For Brendan, in that case, his notion of relationship was less than. But category theory is very agnostic. Another set, another person says relationship means uh, divided by, as you said before, uh, divisible by. But then a whole other kind of thing is not, is it divisible by or is it less than, but how far is it from? And that was the hum of like 300. The distance in cost is 300 or 500 or whatever. And then there's whole other ways where instead of saying the relationship is an amount, it's it's all the different functions. Like the relationship is all the way of transforming one type of thing into another. Um, so I don't know. If, <laughs> it's a very abstract idea, but it's about relationship and different kinds of relationship. And, and that's what the enriching idea of the HOM object is about. Yeah, I think what really made HOM click for me was seeing that, and there's some subtlety here, but that the HOM in the monoidal pre-order of cost was more or less subtraction, um, was a way of taking a, a given cost, subtracting out um, the cost needed to reposition yourself. And then, then you have the relationship between where you then are to everything you might have already wanted previously, the rem- remaining costs necessary to, to achieve it. Mm-hmm. Now, um, taking a pause, because we're not going to get in, dig into this much, but because it recurs throughout the book, do you want to say a word about enrichment? Uh, Brendan, you mentioned it a moment ago. Yeah, uh, this is a, a really good moment because we've talked about um, this notion of a harm object and so the different worlds it can be drawn from. And so there's this sort of general notion of category, which is um, a world where, where things relate. Um, or it's a, sort of a web of relationships between all your objects in your category. Um, but it leaves agnostic what it means for things to relate. And this is where the notion of enrichment comes in. So as we've said, um, you can sort of enrich over the booleans to just talk about pre-orders. You can enrich over the costs to talk about, um, to talk about metric spaces or, or distances. Um, you can enrich over sets, um, which are form another category to, to form the notion of category itself as it's classically understood in sort of in, in mathematics. So in this case, um, as David was saying, there's this category where all the objects are sets and the morphisms are functions. Um, 
And what this means is that the relationship between any two objects is a set. It's the set of all functions that relates those two, um, th those two original sets. And so here we see um, a bit sort of the, the way the language of category theory and it's sort of compact, um, as David said, it's sort of a very efficient organizing structure. But in some sense, because it's so efficient, it, it organizes sort of concepts that relate into two different ways, in, in many different ways. Um, and so the, the word we began to use in the book for this is primordial ooze. Somehow every concept seems to become instances of every other concept, and they sort of almost seem to, to fall into this sort of structureless mess, even though that, that structure is really coming to the fore. Um, but this is why, as I said, we, we talked about HOM objects, and I just said HOM, because the HOM objects are in, in one category are themselves objects in the, another category called the enriching category. I love yeah. the phrase, by the way. It really made me feel better about my, the confusion that arises when I was reading about how many different concepts could be defined with respect to each other. Yeah. As Brendan mm -hmm. says, it's, it's, it's in some sense so structured that once you move a little further, you see, oh, I could have explained the thing I started with in this deeper way with this other thing I've learned now that I built on top of the first thing. But now that I have it, I could have made the first thing with it. Then you keep going and, you, and, and then you think as a young person, maybe you think, well, I wish I just started with that. But then later you see that even that was was an instance of could be even more compactly explained with this other thing. And so it does start to feel like there's no beginning and no end. It's just all it all explains. They all explain each other. So getting back into the more concrete world, um, the big payoff in this chapter was what I took to be the bare minimum requirements for a meaningful notion of matrix multiplication. And so I want to frame this question in terms of an answer I gave to a student back in a discussion who was asking about what a matrix really is. Um, they had met them in terms of linear transformations of vector spaces, but I had experienced, um, I had used matrices to model graphs, uh, both computationally and algebraically. And my answer, the answer I landed on was the idea that matrices simply encode relationships between things. But that's probably not the best way I could have framed it. And so I wonder if you could... Um, build a better answer for me. I think that's a great idea because in, in some sense, as we see in this chapter too, uh, I mean, we've been saying that categories are sort of a world of relationships between things. And so what we, what we do is we start to organize those relationships in, in a matrix. So we have all our objects um, in, in our category um, and we put them as sort of the rows and the columns of, of a matrix. And then we, we start filling in this matrix with the, the ways that they're related. So if it's, it's a, if it's a pre-order, if it's a bull in rich case, then we start putting trues and falses in each of these cells of the matrix. Um, and when we have an appropriately rich enriching structure, um, we can start performing composition of these uh, in, in this category using matrix multiplication. Um, so we sort of take powers of this matrix and that says, uh, it performs this thing, sort of two is less than four and four is less than six. So we put a true in the column that says uh, two is less than six. Um, and, and so again, as you say, a matrix is a way of organizing relationships between things. And matrices are the context in which a lot of what I expect, a lot of resource theoretic work is done because they very naturally encode, encode relationships between the objects represented in the rows and the objects represented in the columns. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, that's that's right. So chapter three introduces categories and functors, one might say finally, with the help of graph presentations. And this might be more familiar territory as it was to me, but can give us an overview of this of these objects. Yeah. Um a category, we keep saying it, it's kind of a network of relationships or a web of relationships. Um, if I, I can make my own category, you can make your own category. Category theorists make their own categories thousands of times per, <laughs> per year or per day. I don't know. Um, but for example, any graph you draw, once you've made the graph, what's the category? The category would be, its objects would be the nodes of the graph and the quote unquote, the morphisms would be the paths. So if there's a path from A to B, that is a morphism in what's called the free category on that graph. And the only thing that makes categories, I mean, what makes category theory different than graph theory is like the principled idea of caring about relationships in all forms and like looking at how relationships relate and stuff. But in terms of just like what the word category means, um, the only difference between a category and a graph is that when you have a category, you can say that two different paths are equivalent. So if I have a path from A to B and you have a path from A to B, we are allowed to say that even though they're going through different nodes, that to me and you, they're the same. So if, if my path is add three and then add seven, and your path is add five and then add five, we can decide to make those the same. And, and then, you know, Alice over there, she decides that in her category, they're not the same. And that's fine. So we have two different categories and there'll be a functor from one of our categories to the other. Like there'll be a relationship between mine and yours, ours and Alice's. So in other words, a category uh, is a graph plus some relationships about which paths are equivalent. And you mentioned free categories um, in that answer, and which is a concept you introduced by way of applications to database management. What's the connection here? Yeah, so a, a database is also, um, if anyone's ever used one, or our listeners have used one, it's a network of relationships. And the relationships, what, what you're going to see in a database is a bunch of tables. Every table will have a bunch of columns and a bunch of rows, and they serve different purposes. The tables are going to be types of things like employees or departments or people or uh, addresses, so types of things. Um, the columns are going to tell you well, if I have something of this type, a person, then they ha- they are working in a department or they have an address or they have a name. And so all of those columns on a fr- coming out of a table or in a table are pointing you to other tables, like the table full of addresses in the, in the, in that the post office holds or the table full of departments that another that, that's held somewhere else. So the, the columns are relationships between concepts and the rows are examples of the concept. So if I have the, the table full of people, the concept is person, and then every person I've ever met or every person that's in my, uh, my, um, my business or whatever is going to be an example of person. So those are what the rows do. And uh, so anyway, what I'm st- t- stepping back, the, 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 both the category and the database are networks of relationships. And it turns out that that analogy can be made formal, um, that the data itself, all those examples are are a functor. So we're talking about categories and functors. The category here are the 
table types and the columns that connect them. And the functor takes every table and returns the set of examples of it or a set of rows and takes every, um, takes every uh, column to a function. And so this, th- there's a strong analogy between categories and databases. And, and in fact, um, a former postdoc and I actually started a company to use this so that we could to move data from one database to another using functors. Was this the project that you mentioned in the book, FQL, the Functorial Query Language? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And I looked it up online. It seems to have been supplanted by CQL. Yeah, Categorical Query Language. I think, so what happened was, I'm I'm a, a mathematician and uh, by training. And so I had this great idea for how we could use uh, category theory to move data around and, and help um, different parts of it. Often a company might have many different databases that don't talk to each other. And and I kind of felt like with this world that needs to be wired up and think together that if, you know, my, my brain or my way of structuring the world is almost like a database. And so if I want to talk to you or Sarah Palin or whatever, maybe if we just knew what our databases looked like, we could send each other examples of, of stuff. Anyway, so I thought this would be important. And it, but uh, it turned out that when we did, when we implemented what I had um, thought would work, all of the data disappeared and only the connection between the data was there. So we didn't know who Bob was or Alice was, all that was gone. But like the fact that Bob was at this particular address um, was there. And so it was kind of like Donald Knuth's famous thing where he says, uh, beware of, of this code. I've only proved it correct. I haven't tested it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, so to finish your question, uh, we tried many different um, incarnations of these ideas, starting with FQL. That didn't work because of this attributes problem. We went to something called FQL++ and then FPQL and then, and then AQL and finally CQL. These are just different incarnations of the language that take into account um, what we learned from the previous ones. Now, the, the, to give one more taste of that, process, of that um, implementation, the central migration func- uh, functor that FQL, as I understand it, was built around, that this analogy is built around, you call delta, and you have this wonderful table of delta and its two adjunctions, its left and right adjuncts. Right. Could you describe that those relationships and how they correspond to conventional uh, query steps? Um, maybe. Um, so delta turns out to kind of be like deleting tables or deleting columns or duplicating tables or duplicating columns, which is very lucky since delta starts with D uh, and deleting and duplicating do also. Um and so it's kind of what relational algebra people would call project. You'd have a you have a table and you project out some columns. This turns out to be formally analogous to that um, that apples and baskets thing, where we took the set of baskets and we looked at all the apples in it. And I, the analogy might not be obvious, but there is a formal sense in which it is. And one of, one of the sense in which it is, is that, as you said, it has two adjoints, and one of them tends to kind of union things. And the other tends to kind of intersect things. Um, And so uh, intersection is what people call a join. It's like uh, two different tables that have a common, a a kind of common column. And you want to find, select uh, from those two tables, all the rows where the common column have the same answer. That makes sense. So maybe you have a dating app and you have people who, yeah, I don't know. Uh, you have one group and another group, 
and they each have a favorite book. And you want to look at those people from group one and group two that have the same favorite book as a way of matching them. That would be a pi. That would be a right adjoint type thing to do. And you can also union things together. And that's a left adjoint type thing to do. So jumping to the next chapter, I thought the context of collaborative design uh, in chapter four served well to motivate the concept of pro-functors. Uh, so I just wonder if you could set the stage here. Yeah, basically um, different design teams working together is the idea. Um, one one team is making the chassis of the robot and one team is making the battery and one team is making the um, motor. And each of them wants to be fairly independent because they don't want every decision that the motor team makes to be affecting what the battery team is doing. And yet, on the other hand, there is trade-offs in the sense that if I have a, a heavier battery, it's more for the chassis or the motor to carry, and yet it can supply more power to that motor. So how much power should I make, how my battery produce at the trade-off of how, how much um, weight it's going to be carrying? And so this is the story is like trying to keep these different design projects independent and yet sending the functionalities and resources that they're providing and requiring from each other around. By the way, this is an idea of someone named Andrea Chensi. Um, uh, in fact, almost everything in the, in the book is, is um, <laughs> we probably should be citing all sorts of different people who have been involved. No, something but that's the idea is, is to... Um, is just to like deal with all these trade-offs of fun providing functionalities and yet requiring resources to do it and finding an optimal solution to a big problem full of feedback of that sort. Um, an example, just quickly, well, I hope quickly, someone, Andrea's student, uh, did a, a project in um, Washington, D.C., where they, where they uh, looked at um, how many autonomous vehicles how many trains, how many buses should we buy as a city for this DC metro area? Um, each of them has different trade-offs and provides functionality, but maybe has maybe requires more parking or you know it takes people longer to do the trip or whatever. And so they they took this co-design idea and put all these functionalities and resource requirements together and found some recommendations for the city. Oh, very cool. It, and this, is, this was an explicit use of category theoretic tools. That's right, yeah. Nice. So the major payoff of this chapter is that profunctors form a compact, closed category. Uh, so can you say, again, what this means uh, in the context, or what it gets us in the world of collaborative design? Yeah, what that says is that um, basically any picture you can draw where you've got, you can imagine the boxes are design problems. Like I want, I've got a box for motor. And I've got a box for chassis and a box for battery. And the wires coming out to the right are, say, the requirements, what I need to make my battery. I need, um, I need you to carry the weight for me. I can't do that. My, uh, and, then what, and then off to the left are things that I provide. I'm going to provide you with some, um, some uh, wattage and some voltage. I'm going to, sorry, some voltage and some current. Um, um, so... So each of these guys, uh, each of these little boxes has some wires coming out to the left that it provides and some wires to the right that it needs. And everything that's needed has to be provided by somebody else, um, whether it's the weight being carried or the cost or, or the voltage, you know, the power or whatever. Um, and so the, the wires connect in 
one person's one team's providing it and the other one's uh, requiring it. And the compact closed category thing says that no matter how you wire those guys together with all sorts of feedback, the result is going to have a Pareto optimal um, solution set. Like it, we will be able to solve this problem. Maybe not, maybe our computers will take a long time, but at least it has a mathematical solution that's well-defined. So again, building on the t- this topics dealt with in this chapter, but kind of taking a bit of leave from the applications Category theory is sometimes caricatured as abstract nonsense. I remember seeing this as far back as undergraduate. But in this chapter, we're introduced to a concept called categorification, which on my reading amounts to a concretization of a bunch of abstract rules. So you take the example of the mathematical statement 5 plus 3 equals 8, and you categorify it into a collection of sets and correspondences between them that are represented abstractly as five plus three equals eight. And so this struck me as kind of the reverse operation um, of what we think of as category theory. Um, You have this abstract rule and you find um, sets and correspondences that it's used to encode, or maybe the better take is that, that humans have developed mathematics for the purpose of encoding in the first place. Is that a fair take? Yeah, so five plus three is eight. Um, what is that about? It's like if I have five goats and you have three goats and we put them together, we'll have eight goats. And so it's really about sets and unions of sets. And so categorification is taking this concept of five plus three is eight and, and casting it in this world of sets where you have disjoint unions and we have products. Products of sets are are like uh, if I have a, a five element set and you have a three element set, we could make a grid. And now, instead of someone having to point with two fingers, one to my five-element set and one to your three-element set, they only need to point with one finger to the grid, to the, to the right? Instead of needing to point to both of ours, if they want to pick one from mine and one from yours, they just point to one spot. And so that's what a lot of, um, when you asked about meet and join before, when you asked about, um, pro- when, if you talk about product, there's all sorts of different ideas where there's like this universal solution to something. but. But anyway, as you said, a lot of, of a lot of the operations plus times zero one exponentiation factorial, all of these are actually things about sets. Factorial is how many isomorphisms there are from a set to itself. Um, uh, exponentiation is how many functions are there from one set to another. Multiplication is how many are, elements are there in the grid and stuff like that. And so, categorification is this idea of taking just numbers and finding this bigger world of relationships where the numbers come out of um, that. I don't know if that was clear. That was great. So chapter five introduces a kind of complement to symmetric monoidal preorders, monoidal categories called props and diagrams called signal flow graphs. What role do these concepts play? Yeah. So as you point out, this book is, we decided to sort of stage it through, we wanted to introduce all these ideas from category theory, um, and we decided to stage it through sort of simpler notions that that we gradually added more and more detail to. So we start with this notion of pre-order, then in resource theories, we add this monoidal structure, and then we talk about monoidal pre-orders. Um, and we, then in chapter three, instead of talking about being able to sort of take objects and, and glom them together with this monoidal structure, we start enriching 
we start changing the notion of relationships. So we start talking about sets of morphisms rather than just uh, the existence of, of a relationship. Um, and now in, in this chapter five, we're beginning to put both this sort of categorical structure and this monoidal structure together with this notion of um, sort of monoidal preorders and monoidal categories. Um, so in particular, um, a preorder is a simple sort of category where, again, instead of having a set of relationships or, or instead of the notion of relationship being the set of all these ways, it's just a single thing. Um, in, in this notion of a prop, uh, we, we want sort of this power of a symmetric monodal category, but they're sort of unwieldy beasts. And so our, our simplification here is not to take the morphisms and squish them down, but to uh, um, say that our objects... Um, have to be just be natural numbers. So they're one of the simplest pre-orders you can imagine. Um, and, and a structure that's very familiar to, to everyone. And it sort of, um, it, it manifests really nicely because the, the objects being these natural numbers meaning means that we can draw the, each object as, so the object five is five wires coming into uh, a, a process or a, a morphism, right? Um, and this is really useful because it begins to model a lot of structures that people have already discovered um, in, in engineering tasks. So um, in, in, in the previous few chapters, and unfortunately, we haven't been able to show visuals, but we start very heavily relying on this, this wiring diagram framework for thinking about composition. Um, and so you, you pointed out that this notion in this um, collaborative design framework, we start using... Uh, we start noticing that our structures form a compact closed category, and this um, has this nice diagrammatic formalism, which helps us to sort of draw these loops that talk about feedback or that, that denote feedback, which is what David was saying is really important in collaborative design problems and makes the whole issue kind of hairy. Um, so here, um, where we start talking about this diagrammatic framework um, for, for props, um, Using and it relates to things like circuit diagrams, or in particular, this notion um, from engineering called a signal flow graph. Um, and these are, are sort of ways to describe uh, matrices, or um, but but come from, I guess, talking about uh, transformation of signals through some process. So the idea is you've got these signals living on a wire, and you can you have say the matrices over the real numbers, so you can scale these signals, you can amplify it by multiplying by five or something. And if you take two wires, you can add those two signals together. So you can you have these two wires coming in, you have this node that adds them, and you have the one wire, the added signal coming out. And you can construct these, these diagrams in, in this sort of visual language. And I guess a question you might ask when you, when you look at these diagrams is formally what, what's going on here? Um, what, is the, what is the algebra? What is the mathematics here? And you get the, the framework from this for talk, from talking, uh, by talking about flow diagram, uh, sorry, talking about props or symmetric monodal categories. And in fact, there's another big payoff at the end of this chapter where we complement, so earlier we learned what matrix multiplication is in mm -hmm. some sort of minimalistic sense. Mm -hmm. In this chapter, we look at the prop of matrices over a rig, and I guess I can mm -hmm. say a rig is like a ring, has those kinds of operations and objects within it, except it doesn't necessarily include negatives, additive inverses. Mm -hmm. But if we build... Yeah, 
The joke the is that a rig is a ring without N. So you, you take right. the N out, negatives out, and you get a rig. Right. One of these very clever mathematical terms that sort of pop up in the literature here and there. So we build the prop of matrices over a rig, and we find that matrix multiplication provides, um, and this is a new term for me, functorial semantics for these signal mm -hmm. flow graphs. You described how this meet, what this means in terms of the, the graphs themselves, these diagrams, but it also has implications for the interactions among matrices. And I wonder if you could just say what that is, because it was really impressive to me when I came across it. Yeah, this is a pretty bit of work that, um, again, David says we should give credit. Um, and, and many and sort of much of the material in this book is the work of the community. Um, so this goes back to people like Pavel Sobochinsky and Fabio Zanassi um, and Filippo Bonchi, but also John Baez and, and Jason Erbley. But um, the, the idea um, of functorial semantics is that you, you have two categories. Um, you have a syntax category and a semantics category. Um, and in, in any good notion of language, uh, you, have, you have your primitives, but you also have a means of combination, a grammar that says, from these words, we can form these sentences. And this holds true for graphical languages too. So for these signal flow diagrams, you have these primitives like add or scale or, or copy a signal. Um, and then you have this means of combination, which is the structure of the prop or the symmetric monodal category. Uh, and so from this, you can build this world of, of circuit diagrams, well-formed terms, well-formed sentences in our language. But we also want to not just be able to sort of do the syntactic game of, of writing down sentences, but we also want to be able to interpret these sentences and understand what they mean. Um, so we have this other category, the semantics category, which says that each of these diagrams really represents some linear transformation or some matrix. Um, and the notion of functorial semantics says that this, this notion of language is, is good in the sense that the, la the meaning of an entire sentence, an entire diagram, can be deduced from the meanings of the individual parts, the words, and the, the grammatical structure by which they're combined. Um, so this, in some sense, I mean, language isn't, English, natural language isn't quite as, as well structured at this because we have sort of uh, uh, puns or, or sort of terms of, um, uh, I, let me try and think of a, a relevant one. Um, Like a red herring is not simply a, a fish that is red. Um, it's not. So, so language isn't compositional in this really nice, strict sense. Um, right, so figures of speech that a mathematician, if they were being really pedantic, might call abuses of terminology. Right, exactly. But in, in functorial semantics, we, we don't permit that, right? What makes it functorial is that really that a red herring should just be a, a red herring, uh, this red swimming thing. Um, and so this is, this is where we get this notion of functorial semantics. And in particular, we have this beautiful example um, of, of functorial semantics for signal flow graphs in terms of matrices, uh, which is beautiful because we can really sort of state theorem precisely and say that this is uh, a complete language for talking about uh, matrices and, and linear transformations of signals. But what's really pretty is also that this, the beginnings of this language were discovered by sort of Shannon uh, Claude Shannon in the 60s, he started drawing these signal flow graphs. Um, and now I think in, in these sort of recent years, we can really sort of state precisely why this works and, and sort of 
also begin to generalize it, begin to build on this theory because we understand the sort of mathematical underpinnings of it. And one of the cool aspects of it when I was reading was that by introducing a new collection of atomics, I guess, uh, for the signal mm -hmm. flow graphs, reversing the collection of, um, of rules that you have, you introduce the, you expand from matrix multiplication to in fact, the solving of linear relations, mm -hmm. which is a really beautiful way of capturing that what linear systems of linear equations are, or at least how they're solved, what they mean is a way of unwrapping the multiplication that arrives mm -hmm. at them, that, that delivers them. Mm -hmm. And I think this um, is a really lovely sort of observation of how, as you said, um, the, the mathematics category theory sort of is used to model these applications, but the applications also drive the mathematics. Um, and so for me, if you really think about what we're trying to model with these signal flow graphs, we're trying to model these sort of circuits or these, these physical systems that you can connect sort of any which way that don't have this natural notion of direction that's built into the notion of function or linear transformation and these sort of mathematical tools we use to handle them. Um, and but by treating this sort of diagrammatic representation as a first class aspect of what is going on and saying, let's really try and not work with this matrix abstraction, but work with the diagrams themselves. We have these natural operations where you can take your, your sort of components and you can twist them around. Um, and these themselves have sort of enrich our mathematical structure. We can explore this, we can find better semantics or richer semantics, and we can start to reason with it in terms of these sort of notions of, of linear relations and solutions to linear equations. So jumping ahead to chapter six, uh, which introduces a procedure for assembling categories from just about anything. You mentioned earlier um, category theory applied to electrical circuits. And in this chapter, you really explicitly do this. The chapter also drove home for me the point that the, the basic units of categories are their morphisms rather than their objects. So can you say what cospans are and what a category of cospans gives us? Right. Um, I'll do my best. So a cospan, um, you, you, you're right. Um, in, in many of these cases that we're discussing categories, the morphisms are really what matters. And in fact, there's this sort of... Uh, Sort of beautiful theorem, sort of foundational category theory, which we unfortunately don't sort of spend time on in this book called the UNA dilemma. Um, and so if you're, uh, forgive me if I get a bit more technical, um, but I, um, so if you're sort of studying um, undergraduate mathematics and you, you, you come up with these sort of structures like the algebraic structure of a group or, or a ring or a vector space, um, and you sort of feel that these, these sort of groups, this thing that models symmetry, is the object of study. Um, but then you can sort of assemble all these groups and these relationships that we've, cut, we've encountered the word hom, you, a relationship between two groups is a group homomorphism, uh, where the word hom comes from. And you end up assembling this category of groups, which has these groups and has all these relationships, these homomorphisms between them. Um, and the Unida lemma says that really the structure of any group can be recovered by the structure of its relationship. So it's, it's encoded in the morphisms themselves. Um, and so you can take this sort of morphism or this relationship-oriented perspective, and it's, in, in a very precise sense, equivalent or just as powerful as studying the groups themselves. Um, and so what 
we see in um, as we sort of move forward here, we start focusing a lot more and in, in applied category theory in general on the morphisms. Um, and one of the reasons we do this too is because the morphisms are the aspect that can be composed. Uh, so for, for circuit diagrams, uh, we're interested the sort of objects themselves just form this sort of typing system and the morphisms form these things that, that really we build circuit diagrams out of. Um, but to get to the question on, on co-spans then, um, so because the morphisms are the important thing, uh, there's a simple construction you can do with morphisms where morphisms uh, are directed. They're like these directed edges in, in these graphs. So a morphism goes from A to B, um, but we can also, uh, we can sort of chain together these things in sort of opposite directions. If we have a morphism from A to B and a morphism from B to C, then we can compose them. And that's just a natural operation you can do in a category. But if you have a morphism from A to B and a morphism from C to B, um, then you can form this thing called a co-span, which goes from A to C, but instead of the um, instead of the arrows pointing in the same direction, they point in opposite directions. The arrows both point towards B. Um, the reason we do this uh, is because in the category of um, sets, this helps us talk about sort of uh, a notion of um, equality or identification. Um, so we use these to track. If you imagine um, uh, the, the, this sort of this co-span from A to C with functions both pointing to B, then B is a set of sort of equivalence classes or um, a set of, of nodes that uh, I mean, one way you can do this is think of it just as a set of points that you can connect wires to. Um, and the functions say that here, the functions from A and C say, here are all these points that we might connect other things to. Um, which ones are they connected to via, sorry, which, which sort of nodes are they connected to? Um, let, me, let me give an analogy with, um, say, power boards or sort of multi-power adapters. Um, this is, there's a, there's a co-span here, which says that all these, we have the, the port coming out of the wall or the set of ports coming out of the walls. And we have the set of ports coming out of the power adapters. And the power adapters say sort of, you can use all of these on your left-hand side, C, to draw power from these, this port on the right-hand side, A. Sorry, left-hand side, A. Um, anyway, there's a... No, that's a great that, analogy, actually. Um, yeah, this, yeah, this notion it's, of... It's sort of very... Sorry. This, this, the way that these... Um, I, I sort of took to understanding co-spans as, as ways of coupling... Um, Elements, or element is the wrong word, but units mm. of some kind from the different morphisms involved as a way of sort of pairing them together and telling how they compose. Uh, mm -hmm. And so in a sense, I thought of cospans as generalizing what a morphism is and allowing you to compose things in a very customizable way. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's the, that's the use that I put to here. Um, because, um, yeah, this is really cutting into the weeds a bit, um, but I, I think it's worth spending a, a few seconds on at a higher level. So the notion of co-span uh, relates to this notion of co-limit, uh, which is often in the category sets about identifying or quotienting, sort of saying that these wires are the same, uh, these variables are the same, and so on. 
Um, and so this, I guess, I just want to sort of talk a bit about this notion of a co-limit, which um, is very related to, so this notion of limits and co-limits, universal constructions within a category, uh, examples of sort of these, these meets and joins, uh, sorry, uh, uh, generalizations of these sort of meets and joins, and even in some sense, these notions of adjunctions that we've talked about earlier. Um, and so, hmm. okay, I'll, I'll leave it there. Um, there's this notion of co-span allows us to basically sort of fuse all the, to, to manage this process of fusing wires and talk about this very, very general notion of composition, uh, which helps us get at these notions of, say, electrical circuits were allowed to, to wire any two wires together yeah, fair or enough. any N wires together. It was, I was debating really how much into the weeds I wanted to get with regards to limits and co-limits. And maybe they're better mm -hmm. left to the reader to really explore because they take a lot of, they took me at least, a lot of experimentation, a lot of example working to really get a solid handle on them. Yeah, yeah, they're beautiful, but they, they do take some work, um, like a lot of the stuff. So if I could zoom out again, um, this chapter concludes by introducing operads briefly, uh, which we can leave those also uh, to listeners to read on their own. But you mentioned that operads are an example of level shifting, which was a useful idea for me as a reader. What does this mean in general? So we can, we can study um, a given... So, so what, what we do in this book is set up a whole lot of compositional frameworks uh, from, again, pre-orders to monoidal posets to props to these sort of hypergraph categories or these co-span worlds. Um, and then you can talk about instances of these compositional structures, like we've talked about. We've talked about the tree of life as an instance of a pre-order and so on. But you can also move one level up and talk about the compositional structures themselves as algebraic objects of study. So instead of studying groups, you study the theory of groups. Um, and so in this, and so what an operat is, is it's, it's a framework for composition. It's a, it's a theory of composition. And so we can begin to study not how different instances of a single compositional structure relate to each other, um, but how compositional structures themselves relate to each other. Um, and that's the level shift that goes on in this chapter here. Yeah, another, another way in which category theory really does advance the very notion of abstraction. Um, <laughs> so in the final chapter, chapter seven, you focus on, and you'll have to correct my pronunciation, toposes? Yeah. Which formally right. model behaviors. Uh, and you motivate this by the need for safety proofs. Can you describe the motivation there? Yeah, um, company called Honeywell uh, wrote to me and said, we want to use category theory to study um, safety in the national airspace. So they, they uh, together we wrote a grant to NASA and we got um, some funding to think about that. And, and so what, what they're interested in is that basically in the national airspace, you want to prevent, say, planes from getting too close to each other. Um, but a huge number of different things need to work together to make that happen. The pilots can't see the other planes very easily. I mean, they're far away and they're moving very fast. Um, so they rely on, well, the pilots, but also radars, different sorts of radars, um, collision avoidance systems, ground control, all sorts of different ways that they can communicate and 
various systems within the airplanes and, and throughout the system that have to work in concert for this. Um, all of these are behaviors and like behaving objects that were not designed by the same teams. Someone who designed the first radar, I mean, which was probably thousands of people, um, were not, had no idea that they would be used in, in tandem with uh, the person who designed the, um, the pilot as he was designing himself or herself through those, that coursework uh, or, or through with the collision avoidance system. And so what we need is, what they wanted is some way that each, each, uh, each component of this national airspace could provide their own guarantee. Here's what I'm going to do. If I hear on the radio that I need to turn left, and I promise I will turn left within five seconds. Um, all of these behaviors take place in time. The radar guarantees if, there, if the signal, if the weather is like this, then I guarantee I can tell you the altitude of the other plane within two seconds or whatever. And that we wanted to know if you knew all of these little guarantees by all these little systems that were designed by different people, would you be able to take those behavioral guarantees and put them together to guarantee that the whole national airspace could prevent planes from getting too close to each other. That was, that was kind of the, the um, use case that generated this, uh, the work in chapter seven. Yeah. And this, the importance of these things as happening over time is something that really emerges from the chapter as we go. Although first I wanted to touch upon what was my favorite, um, perhaps my favorite part of the book, your introduction to subobject classifiers uh, which was a new concept to me, but like like everything else, once I got a handle on it, once I saw some examples, it was a very familiar concept. And so could you maybe give an overview of what they are, what purpose they serve, and a couple of examples, because some of the examples should be pretty familiar. Sure, yeah. Um, so the first sub-object classifier people know about is the Booleans, true-false. And true-false um, has the property that it's also yes-no. So people will say in the, in the game, 20 questions, they play the yes, no game. Um, is it this or is it not? And uh, the, the idea is that a subset of things, like say a crab, all the, the set of crabs or something, um, is that, that are, are those things that you see around you that satisfy a bunch of yes, no questions that have yes as their answer and no. So um, if, you, if you ask for a subset of things, like look in your kitchen and tell me everything that's red, uh, that is exactly the set of things for which the answer to is it red is yes. So the Booleans is that place where the answers live. Yes, no. But someone could say, oh, I don't want yes, no as my only kind of answer. For me, when I ask, is it raining? The answer isn't yes or no. It's it's raining in Baltimore or it's raining on the East Coast or it's raining on Thursday but not yes, no. The proposition, it is raining, is not just true or false, like the proposition is two prime, two or three a prime number. So what sub-object classifiers and toposes are about are worlds where you can um, you can kind of pretend like you're working with sets, and yet the kinds of answers you have are more like when is something true, like or where is something true. If I ask, is it raining, you answer not yes or no. You answer exactly where it's raining. And so the sub-object classifier for the topos of weather patterns on the Earth, I'm kind of lying there, but not too badly, um, would be, the sub-object classifier would be um, subsets of the Earth. Because the answers to the questions of where is, it, where is the wind blowing faster than five miles an hour is 
a subset of the earth, not a yes, no. But we can still do things like and and or. Is it raining and is the wind moving faster than five miles an hour? I just intersect those two subsets. And, and is it raining or is the wind higher than five miles an hour? I just union those two subsets. And so the, to finish this out, the usual yes, no booleans are the answers to a space that instead of like the earth is just one point. If the earth was just one point, then you wouldn't have to answer where is it true. It's just either true on the whole point or it's not true on the whole point. One point but, yeah, in what, at one point in time. At one point in time and one point in space, the usual set theory, what people call the category of sets, is a topos. And it is kind of, you can think of it as the topos of behaviors on a one point in space and time uh, world. And so building off of that example setting, um, when you talk about uh, on a topos predicates being sheaf morphisms, I don't want to get too much into the, the strict definition of a sheaf, but you use it to illustrate universal and existential quantification in a way that I found very helpful. Um, instead of weather patterns, you describe newsworthy events and possibly worried viewers. And so I wondered if you could outline that example as well. Yeah, I think it was, um, we were looking at um, the set of people, maybe that's, uh, I think we called it S for some reason. So let's, I, I don't know. So we have the set of people, forget the right, word. I think it was we have people and we have newsworthy events. T, right? So T for topics tea. and S for subjects, perhaps? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> and so um, the predicate was, is this subject, <laughs> is this human worried about this topic? Um, well, I, I, you know, some days I'm worried about global warming and some days I, I just forget. And I didn't think about it all day. And so um, uh, when you ask, is this person worried about this topic? You get a subset of time that time on which the person really is worried about the topic. Um, and so when I ask exists, like, does there exist a, per, uh, a person who is worried about this topic? I get the set of all, so does there exist? Yeah, I get the set of all topics for which there is at least one person worried about it. When I ask for all people, are they worried about this topic? Then I get the set of topics for which everyone's worried about it. But I don't just get a set of topics. I get the set of topics over time. I get, I get like the set of times where everyone in the world is worried about COVID-19 at the exact same moment or something. Um, that, that sort of thing. And so wrapping back to um, the notion of safety proofs, you conclude the chapter with what struck me as a very consequential use case. Um, where you motivate, that you use to motivate the interval domain, another new concept to me. Could you, so could you provide a bit of motivation and explain how the topos of sheaves on it or how the topos on it can be used to prove safety mm -hmm. results? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so what, what's going on there is interval reels have as, it's a funny space. It's a space whose points aren't numbers, but whole intervals of numbers. So the interval from zero to four is a point. Kind of confusing, but in, in as you move uh, up the ladder of abstraction and math and category theory, you get used to saying, "Well, hmm, I guess it satisfies all the definitions, so I guess it counts." Now, what is it? What can I do with it? And the idea is that um, when you use in, in, in topos theory, uh, if we made the points just regular old points, numbers, then the topos theory, what it turns out to give us, are behaviors that if it makes sense over the interval from zero to four, say, 
and some and that behavior type makes sense over the interval from three to seven. So if I have a behavior from zero to four and you have a behavior from three to seven, there's some overlap there, three to four. And if our two behaviors agree on three to four, then we can glue them. That's what Topos theory kind of says. I can take my clip of the movie from zero to four, your clip of the movie from three to seven, check that they agree from three to four and say, yep, they do. Let's make it a big movie and splice them together. When your points are more interesting, or when your points are intervals, you can't just splice those movies together. And you might say that's bad, <laughs> like I want to be able to splice them together. Well, then you're working in a different topos than I am. That's fine. There's a connection between my topos and yours, but I can explain why I might want to use mine too. Um, the reason I might want to use mine is because uh, if I say, remember there was this movie, The Matrix, and the main character named Neo, uh, they knew something was wrong because he saw a black cat. And then like five seconds later, he saw a black cat again. And he said, oh, I got deja vu. And they said, oh my God, here comes the bad guys. <laughs> and the idea is that something made sense from zero to four and something made sense from three to seven. But when you look from zero to seven, it didn't make sense you would see the black cat twice. And so I don't want to be able to glue any two things I see and say they still make sense. Because sometimes if I, if I see a kid doing something, it's perfectly fine. And if I say, don't do that, that's perfectly fine. But if I say, don't do that, and then they do, or if the pilot says he's going to get the plane over here as soon as he hears from the radio, radio, you know, if something makes sense over one interval and another interval, I want them to be correlated somehow. I want what happens later to depend on what happens before and not just every two behaviors to be gluable. Um, so that's a bit fast, but that's the idea is that we wanted to be able to make um, things that happened before force or uh, compel behaviors later in a way that using the regular real numbers wouldn't, when you just do the math, you find it doesn't do. Right. Now, looking back over the whole book, um, the, the uh, concluding sections of each chapter, which you titled Summary and Further Reading, I found very valuable as reference sources. And you've alluded to them a couple of times in conversation that this or that topic really owes a great debt to this enormous community of people who contributed to it over the years. And so the thing that struck me most was that I was not aware of just how far back applications of category theory trace. So could you say a bit about uh, the, his the, um, the age of this literature and how cohesive it has or maybe hasn't been over time? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, the, one of the things that I, I learned coming into this community that really sort of perhaps um, I was naive not to, to realize in advance was sort of how, how scientific advance is, is not just sort of a, um, it's not just a matter of, of the, the science itself, but of the community and of the politics of the situation. Um, and I, I would agree that category theory is sort of under under communicated um, in particularly math departments and particularly in in North America. Um, and so, and it and from my own point of view, it's it's underrepresented as well, um, which owes in part to this, and it owes in part to uh, sort of a history of both category theorists in and math departments that I don't really want to get into. Um, but 
suffice it to say, it often has not been um, so well sort of presented and taught um, and it has not really been synthesized in, in the same way that we've tried to do in this book um, in, in a lot of the um, previous, I don't know, in, in recent history. One area where it has been more cohesive, I think, is in, in computer science and in particular in theoretical computer science in Europe, where there are sort of traditions of communities that um, very strongly use category theory in in all sorts of applications. Um, but I think you're right to pick up on, on the fact that it um, it has not been as cohesive as may be desired, and I hope that it'll be it'll change going forward. And picking up on your own outlook on writing the book, in contrast, um, even to my own graduate level courses, the focus of the book is less on the procedural and more on the conceptual. This is reinforced in particular by the exercises, which appear throughout the text rather than at the end of each chapter, and continue the work of fleshing out examples or proving theorem uh, substatements rather than um, routinizing the student or reader into the into the methods. So. To what extent does that approach follow from the subject matter itself versus reflect your own teaching styles? Yeah, I mean, I I personally tried to use the exercises to what I might call unglaze the reader's eyes. Um, sometimes, as a reader, I'm when I read a book, I start to feel like the author is doing it for me, and uh, I might not check that something is quite. You know, I might not check something. Or, or I might not check whether I really understand something. And so a lot of these exercises were just a, a way of, you know, did you understand the last thing that was said? All you have to do is check, um, you know, that you, you, you got it. Uh, or, or that the proof, um, this part of the proof is actually quite easy. But if I write it for you, you won't know how easy it is. It'll look more complicated than it is. Um, so we, that was a lot of our, our motivation, I think, in writing the exercises. I don't know whether, um, and, and it also goes back to this word invitation that you and Brendan mentioned earlier. This is an invitation to applied category theory is for you to get involved, uh, for to grow the community, to bring people in and to say that um, you are part of, of this book. Like we, right? So we, we just wanted to show that um, that you could really be involved in the actual proofs and in the in, in the understanding of this material and hopefully start to use it and find it in your life. Yeah. And so to me, this is very much a question of style. Um, there are aspects of the subject matter that maybe category theory is a bit more, more sort of conducive to, to this, but I, I think by and large, um, I'd like to see a lot more mathematics taught in this way. Um, and so, so you've picked up on sort of the, the structure of the exercises and I think you also mentioned how often sort of a lot of concepts seemed abstract at first, but it was really working through the examples that helped you sort of see the the insight in, in the structure and also sort of find sort of the fun and the joy in it. And so a lot of the, the exercises for me were, um, I, I sort of, someone once told me this cute example, or I really appreciate this, this aspect. Um, and it would be, I could tell the, the reader about it, but I think they'd get a lot more out of it if they sort of participate in that process of discovery and exploration themselves. Um, and so I hope it that sort of made the book more fun and not more work. Um, but 
I think also um, in terms of teaching style, you, you picked up on the fact that we sort of use the word the words like primordial ooze really informally, but to sort of emphasize that this is, it can be a conceptually tri- tricky subject um, and it, it can take work just to sort of sort through all these different layers and sort of it takes time to appropriately separate them. And part of, of the, the sort of viewpoint of the book is to be more inviting and to sort of acknowledge that part of, of the study of mathematics that is not just this sort of dry subject where you present all of the theorems and proofs and then at the end you sort of grind through some procedural computations to, to gain an understanding of it. It is, is it a space for discovery and exploration and a confusion. Um, and so hopefully that, that experience comes across in the book. No, it's all three of those facets certainly came true for me as I went through the book. So cycling back to the book's premise, you urge readers to be conscientious in our use of the tools that you develop in, over the course of the text um, to use category theory for good. So I'm very curious. Um, well, I guess first I'd like you to make this call to listeners, but I'm also curious whether you've gotten responses from readers who have used category theory to, say, support their communities or societies? Yeah, so um, I, I think these ideas are really powerful for organizing uh, thoughts about things. And well-organized thoughts can be used to raise us all up and create you know, better societies, but they can also be used to give, give to one group at the expense of another. Um, so yeah, we're, I mean, we're all in this together. I think like we're all in this world together, and and we want to realize ways you know that we influence each other. We want to understand each other. We want to, I mean, I think I want to build uh, something I've heard called the listening society, where people from discipline, different disciplines understand each other, and they can start to help each other develop. Say, did you know about this way of seeing things? And and like instead of a world where we compete all the time. I mean, competition is, is good too, but also to help each other develop. Um, so that's, that's kind of the call from my point of view is that this, this, these powerful ideas should be used to make, make the world that we're all a part of, you know, develop you know, more, more, uh, more um, interesting and, yeah. and, and nice. Yeah. From my point of view, we, we are participating in, in work that ends up, building sort of the, the infrastructure that we're talking over right now that, that is delivering this podcast to, to listeners. We, we help build, we, we help sort of develop, develop the ideas that underpin sort of the, this network society that we live in. And we see, particularly right now, that this can have sort of good and bad consequences or this, this can have, um, in particular at the moment, some consequences that, I personally don't desire in terms of sort of political influence, in terms of polarization in the media, in terms of a pandemic arising from just sort of the ways we, our societies network together, but our inability to sort of intervene and, and sort of exercise some um, necessary, I guess, control over over how this, this flow works. Um, and so I think as we... As we participate in this as scientists, it's important to realize that we're not just, um, it's not just a matter of sort of contributing to the construction of technologies and leaving it there, that our values can be encoded in these technologies and we can use this to shape 
the, the way we live our lives. But in particular, with regard to category theory itself um, and its, its focus on relationships and systems and interconnection and composition, I think it, I personally believe it's going to become increasingly relevant um, in, in this sort of global network society that we live in. Um, and I think, I hope we've given a bit of a taste of that in the book. Um, obviously, we haven't got to the details, partly because of technical difficulty and partly because I hope that they'll continue to be worked out. Um, but you see, for example, in this sort of safe separation, this is in this last chapter, it's about sort of uh, all these now computer autonomous, perhaps systems, human computer interaction systems interacting, in this case, planes. And we want to be able to provide some sort of logic over that, which helps keep the sort of the airspace safe. Uh, but this could equally be autonomous cars. This could equally be um, providing logical constraints on what's happening in social media. Uh, and it's our hope that not only we that people sort of um, care about these topics, but they see their work um, as, as mathematicians and as people who participate in this community of applied category theorists as trying to at least make a, a positive difference or at least an aware, aware difference. Yeah. And just to go a little, uh, say a little more, um, category theory is not very prescriptive. So we're not trying to say, here's how you make a better society. In some sense, we're trying to say, here's a language you can use. You, I mean, you might've heard me say a number of times, people make their own categories all the time and Alice makes hers and I make mine and whatever. And, and we, but we can talk once we do. So one, so so if we have, Brendan mentioned the word control over, you know, how, how um, information or whatever people move around when in the terms of a pandemic. And I, I think he, I, maybe one could say, oh, control, I'm scared of that. And the point is that we're not dictating how that control would go. We're saying here's a language where people, a community can speak and talk about these issues and say what the trade-offs are and say, uh, what what this kind of behavior, how it interacts with that kind of behavior and what it forms when they are put together. And just making a language where this t- sort of topic has is less fraught with mistakes of interpretation because there is a formal object behind the scenes that we can actually point to and say, wait, did you mean did you mean this sheaf or that sheaf? <laughs> did you mean this uh, proposition or that proposition? And and that sort of um, ability to disambiguate is what we're really trying to offer so that the discussion moves forward. Yeah, if I can comment just from my own experience, um, the literature on systems approaches to all manner of subjects, I'm more familiar with um, with um, a little bit of, of social network analysis and, 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 and healthcare uh, data analysis, but a lot of the systems literature is very unorganized. And I don't, I don't mean that in terms of the papers being hard to read, but in terms of the underlying mathematics being obscured by the sheer amount of aggregation Mm -hmm. and approximation and um, sort of rough and ready analysis being used that doesn't rely on an underlying grammar or theory or scheme. Mm -hmm. And so it strikes me just now, as, as you've been talking, that category theory has the potential to provide some of that um, scaffolding for a lot of analysis and, and to sort of imbue it with some rigor, but more importantly, some ability to query, right? To, to ask questions mm-hmm. and get, and get uh, reliable answers. Yeah. Yeah. We very much believe so. Um, I, I also wanted to add one more aspect to this call, um, which 
is is very important to me is we we mentioned that as you as you study this group a certain one thing you can oh, sorry as you as you sort of study this material uh, one thing you can do is just uh, reach out to uh, groups that are underrepresented in um, in this field and sort of sort of learn with them um, listen to them involve them in the process of learning and the sort of uh, in some sense, the mastery of this material. Um, and I think what's important, uh, especially in seeing the sort of political events, the protests over the last couple of weeks in this country, um, is that we give people more of a voice, give more communities more of a voice in the way that our society is being developed. And I think given our case that this this knowledge hopefully will correspond to some sort of power over the society that we build. I think it's very important that we include more and more people, more and more parts of society in this knowledge and in this process of construction. Um, so part of the call is is simply that, just to to be aware and to think about that. The message is very well taken. Material. Thanks, Brendan. Now I've taken up quite a bit of your time, for which I'm very grateful. And so to begin to wrap up, what is another piece of scholarship or media that you think makes a good companion to yours? Um, so uh, one is, um, say, Mathema, by, uh, a blog by Ty Dene Bradley. Um, one is The Catsters and Eugenia Cheng uh, and Simon Willerton. But Eugenia has made a lot of great material, um, uh, very accessible to people. And then more classically, there's... Uh, McLean's book, uh, Mathematics, Form and Function, is a really excellent book. McLean was the or one of the originators of category theory. And, um, and another one I can think of is Bill Levere's, Levere and Shaniel's book, uh, Conceptual Mathematics. Because category theory is conceptual mathematics. It is it's not the mathematics of number. It's, that's included in, that's a concept. And, and it's really the question of how do we organize all of our concepts? I'd mention those, I think. Yeah, to just name one myself, um, to pick up on, uh, David mentioned Eugenia Chang's work. And one thing I'm excited about is a, a book that she's got coming out, I think next month, called X Plus Y, A Mathematician's Manifesto for Rethinking Gender. Um, and I haven't read it, um, but I, it's, it's about the issues we've just been talking about and also taking a category theoretic perspective to them. Um, she's an amazing category theorist, and I know that's a very strong lens she's used through this book to talk about, say, for example, order and equality um, and, and these notions that we've been discussing through this, this conversation, um, but also applying them to, I think, subjects that matter to us all. Yes, I have heard of her book, and I'm looking very, very much forward to reading it at some point. Me too. And so finally, the traditional closing question of the New Books Network, what are you working on now? And is another book project potentially in the works? Oh, big question. Um, the book project answer is is easy. Um, yes, we're writing a book on with Bartosz Molesky, a, a programmer um, who who spent a lot of time working at Microsoft. Um, it's tentative, tentatively called um, Programming with Categories, and it's about programming with categories. <laughs> uh, well titled. Um, oh, should. Let's see. I'd like to say, I don't know, David, do you want to say anything about research? 
Or is that? I get, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Are, um, are you? I, I, I guess I was confused. I guess um, maybe Brent's hesitating to talk about another big project oh, we're okay. working on. Well, don't feel obligated. Uh, I, 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 I can say a few words. Okay. Um, I just wanted to know. So we're we're working on a bunch of exciting research topics too, um, in the direction of a lot of things. With I mean, I hope you've seen what motivates us and the sorts of style of thinking we do. Um, so we're, we're doing more of that, but we won't get into the technical details. And then uh, lastly, we're working on a nonprofit, um, so an independent research institution um, based uh, slightly outside academia. It'll be based in Berkeley. Um, And the idea is that we want to rethink the way that these ideas get out there into the world, um, the way that sort of of, um, these sort of abstraction, sort of powerful mathematical ideas um, how how much contact they have with industry and the people that implement these th- these sorts of technologies, and to make make sure that not only that our ideas are um, adequately informed by the challenges that people face, but also adequately affect them and can be can be used to um, develop new technologies. So our our mission, the organization is called Topos Institute. Um, Topos. Is, is a pun on the mathematical concept of which we've just discussed, but also we mean it means place or space, and we mean to create a space for for convening um, across sort of uh, mathematics and and sort of formal thinking, but also through technology and society. And so the, the mission is simply to to shape tomorrow's technologies for the benefit of us all, for the benefit of the public, by advancing sciences of connection and integration such as category theory and type theory and programming languages and related subjects. So on that notion of Topos, actually, is this going to be a mostly uh, digital uh, institution or will there be a storefront that someone could visit, say, if they're if they happen to be in the Bay Area? It's it's very important to us that I think this is a a physical place where people can interact Mm -hmm. and, and work together. It'll have chalkboards. (laughs) <laughs> whiteboards. <laughs> I mean, we want people to actually come and hang out and teach us what they're thinking about and, and we'll work with them to make it categorical or work with, uh, you know, disseminate ideas through education, work with policymakers. Um, just w- we have an idea about the world as a big network. Uh, we have various ideas about how information can be organized and stuff. We want to bring those ideas to people and, and make a a better world, that kind of way. That sounds fantastic. I look forward to perhaps stopping by once this pandemic has subsided or been overcome and we can travel a little bit more easily. Yeah. Please do. I'd love to have you there. Yeah, that'd be great. So I've been talking with Brendan Fong and David Spivak, whose book, An Invitation to Applied Category Theory, Seven Sketches in Compositionality, was published by Cambridge University Press last year, 2019. Brendan and David, thanks so much for joining me on New Books in Mathematics. Thanks so much for having us. It's been a pleasure. Yeah.